What are my steps in your word, dear Lord? Lead me, guide me every day. Send your anointing, Father, I pray. What are my steps in your word? Please order my steps in your word. December 23rd, 2009. I attempted to destroy the very temple in which God built just for me. I took a sheet, wrapped it around my neck and began to pull until life exited my body with the same intensity as it entered. I continued to pull and God asked me, my son, who taught you to hate yourself? And I sat speechless to contemplate the reasons in which I didn't deem myself worthy of living. He asked again, my son, who taught you to hate yourself? Childhood toys that held no resemblance to my direct ancestry television that tries to convince me that the only way to success is drugs, money, and sex, but I never listen. See, I met this woman, Denise, and she had to be Denise of God because every time she spoke, her wings grew, and her angelic voice churned in a pit of my stomach with more molten lava than Mount Fuji itself. She warned me about urban street pharmacists, confused with life, selling their false dreams, confusing their whips with the whips of life, snorting coke after coke and then silence. And God began to speak, words ricocheting off the walls, shattering my very existence. He said, my son, I want you to engage materials that not only look like you, but reflect the morals or ideologies in which you should embody. So take these, this one, his name is Malcolm. Now, though he doesn't play much, he can give one heck of a speech. This one, her name is Harriet, and she can run, swim, and dodge the racist clutch of history without tearing a single piece of fabric. This one, his name is Martin. He not only captivates your mind, but your body and spirit also. And at that moment, I began to realize that one shouldn't settle for minuscule thoughts, but in fact, dream big. Dream ridiculous dreams never to be told and take pride in your senseless rants and never give up on what truly makes you happy. And from a distance, I could hear him faintly, my son, who taught you to hate yourself? I did, my father, and I apologize. And at that moment, he cupped my face into his hands, breathed life into my body and told me to release my grip, to never give up, and to truly Dream big. Man, that was amazing. I got goosebumps, brother. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, welcome back to The Evolution. My name is Jeff Bayless. I'm the uh, facilitator of this project in an effort of putting something positive out into the ether and into your earbuds. Um, solely for that reason, that reason alone, uh, I have a boss mate, uh, a friend of a friend, but now we're going to be good friends. Absolutely. Uh, Anthony Hyland. Welcome. I appreciate your time, and uh, I know that this is going to do a lot of good for a lot of people, man. So I appreciate you. Absolutely. Thanks, and also welcome to my home. Absolutely. Love your home, by the way. Enjoy, <laughs> well, that's all my wife, and enjoy the smell of the banana breads. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you come from, what your background is. Uh, obviously, we'll get to the, you know, where we got into this spoken word thing, and all, oh, yeah, the, all the gifts that God's obviously given you, uh, but tell us, tell us where you come from. Okay. Um, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I am one of six. Um, I have five brothers, no sisters. Uh, not really sure if a girl would have survived in my family <laughs> here yeah. with us. Um, I uh, grew up in uh, the foster care system uh, the first five years of my life. Um, thereafter, persevering, going from you know home to home with various family members, um, to which I always stay focused on my education. Um, I received a full four-year scholarship to college. Wait, wait, wait. So, you were in a foster 
care system. So yes. your mother, basically, you she gave you up and you went into the foster care system. As soon as I was born. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, it was rough. Uh, so you were in a family that knew it was temporary or did they think that... So kind of twofold. So one, um, well, let me retract. I'm very thankful for the family that I did have. Um, okay. As I grew up, I began to do case studies on different foster care systems and families and things of that nature. And, you know, we've seen horror stories of things that have happened to foster care children. And I was blessed to have a good family. Okay. Um, they actually wanted to adopt me and my brother, uh, me and my older brother. Um, actually, we had that. We were in the same um, foster home. Now, I'm not sure how long he was there, but I know I was there for five years. Um, and they wanted to adopt us. However, my grandmother, um, she wanted to keep all my brothers together. Sure. Um, so she got us out the system once I hit my five-year mark. Got you. Okay. That makes more sense now. Okay. And that's how you have this. So you have a relationship with your brothers and your grandmother. You Absolutely. still have a relationship with your mother and father? Uh, well, my father was never around. Okay. Um, and my mother is doing tremendously better. Okay. Um, we actually, I wouldn't say we have a great relationship, but it's definitely a lot better than what it used to be. Yeah. Um, a lot of holes um, in terms of, you know, who my actual father was, um, why she gave me up, things of that nature. So, you know, different things like, you know, uh, bring your parent to school day or, you know, career day, stuff like that. You know, my grandmother was a traveling baby nurse. That's not exciting. You know, yeah. to to a seven year old or eight year old, you know what I mean. Yeah. So when you would see, you know, kids with you know their mothers and fathers, you know, oftentimes I would ask, you know, well, why couldn't that be me? You yeah. know, why couldn't I have that? Um, and Philly's a tough town, man. Uh, my wife, uh, her cousin, which is really her sister, lives in Philly, and we like ran the Philly Marathon. We've been up there a couple times. Beautiful city, like big heart in that city. Absolutely. But there's also some rough rough areas oh yes oh yeah. yes um there were some things that you know i saw growing up one of my um closest friends got shot in the face right next to me yeah um which was you know for a teenager pretty traumatic um but i didn't realize until i got older the impact that those things had on me um in, in terms of you know staying out of the streets um, my grandmother raised us in the church um i'm not very religious these days um but i do believe in god um but i do believe that you know her way of shielding us from the streets was by keeping us in church um and you know i can say to this day i've never been to jail never been arrested you know um you never got in any trouble you didn't nope. no drugs no violence no drugs yeah, man nothing. you're a yeah. that's a that's a positive song story right there absolutely you could have easily been a statistic right and i'm gonna be honest yeah. i wanted to oh really you know i you know i seen the guys in the neighborhood and you know i, I had a, a a job at my church I was an after-school tutor for English, and uh, I would, you know, go out with my friends, and they would twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, you know, a week. And, and by the end of the week, I'm getting paid, you know, by the church, and they broke. Yeah. And I'm like, how you spend forty thousand dollars in a week? You know what I mean? So to me, it was more of the flashy things that I wanted to have instead of, you know, the appreciating the values of what my grandmother was trying to instill in us in terms of hard work. You know, appreciating what you have because you've worked for it. And, you know, just understand that you don't have to do things illegally to get what you want legally. Yeah. What was the uh, what was the move from religion like? So you say you still believe in God. Mm -hmm. uh, is I, I think I just read an article the other day about how so many people like I'm, I'm, I, I go to church. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a Christian, uh, but I don't like the. Well, my daughter was baptized last Sunday, actually, mm -hmm. uh, which was amazing. And I cried a little bit, but uh, 
you know, I think people are moving away from religion as because there's so much uh, stigma, so much corruption, so much, you know, like the Catholic Church. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to turn anybody off here that is uh, religious, but to frame it into your story, were you pushed away from the, the rituals or was it? I think it was more or? so for me, uh, what I consider the theatrics of church. Yeah. Um, sometimes I just feel that, uh, well, as I continued on my uh, my journey to spirituality, I realized that, you know, I didn't need to be in a physical building to have a relationship with God. I think we're having fellowship right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know and and yeah. it's, it's the understanding of that that kind of pushed me away from what I consider the uh, the continuous rituals of what society says religion should look like. Yeah, I got you. Um, and then, you know, I hear some people, oh, you're a devil worshiper. You don't believe in God. Da, da, da. It's like, no, I believe in God. And I, I do believe that there is a higher power. I just, as you continue to delve deeper into religion, then there's, it's almost essentially like, do you just believe on faith or do you take it for, you know, the scientific aspect of it? And I don't want to get into all of that. Yeah, that's a long <laughs> conversation too. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, I, yeah, but a belief in a higher power, I think, is an important thing to absolutely uh, to, to mark on. I, I went to a... Uh, I'm the DAPA at our command, and so I had to okay. go to a, uh, an AA meeting, and they talked about a higher power, and one of the women in the class was like, I'm going to prison, and I'm going to miss all these holidays, and you know, it's all because of my multiple DUIs, or mm-hmm. you know, I, I think she like caused somebody harm. You know? Wow. She said, you know, at first my higher power was this chair that I sit in, and now over time I've started to understand that there is a higher power like impacting wow. in my life, right? But at the first... So, on your point, I totally agree. I would never uh, tell someone they need to be Christian. They need to, you know, I'm not an evangelical in any way. Right. Let's start with a higher power, and you're gonna you're gonna do good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And to me, I, I think it kind of not necessarily shifts the responsibility, but it gives you, to me, um, it gives you accountability. Yeah. Because you understand that there are certain instances in your life. Because the thing about it is this. Um, you just talked about your daughter being baptized, right? That experience, you can't quantify that. That's right. I don't know what that felt like for you. You know what yeah. I mean? So I say all that to say that your journey and your walk is different than my journey and my walk. That doesn't mean I have to demean or diminish the value of what your walk is Agreed. and or consists of. And you have a lot of people in this day and age that do that. If you don't follow this religion, then you're going to this place. If you don't follow this religion, then you're going to this place. Well, if you don't have these types of beliefs, then it's just like... Why can't we understand each other even if we don't agree with each other? Yeah. And that, well, that, that to me is my goodness. A lot of political leaders could, <laughs> could do well to learn that lesson. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So foster care, your grandmother brought you out. Uh, and then you, you got a full scholarship out of high school because you did so well in high school. I did. Obviously, you got a full scholarship to where? Uh, Voorhees College uh, Voorhees. in Denmark, South Carolina. Okay. Okay. Yes. So you went there alone then? I did. Yeah. I did. Very scary. Yeah. Very scary experience. I um, I told my grandmother, I, well, I graduated first in my class um, with a 3.79 GPA. And I make sure I say that not necessarily to be uh, uh, arrogant or braggadocious, but to make the point that regardless of where you come from, what you truly find to be foundational is what will guide you over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter what we got involved in or what we engaged ourselves in, whether it be sports. Um, I was on the debate team. Um, I was on the chess team, I was in student government, all of these things. My grandmother always told us that education is paramount. Yeah. So going to the school, I told her, 
we're broke. <laughs> I can't afford for you to pay for me to go to was college. Was she educated? She was not. Yeah. Um, she had a, well, high school was her, her basis. And my mother, she dropped out of high school yeah. um, because she had my brother um, so young. And um, people in my family didn't traditionally go to college. I was the first generation, well, my brothers and I were the first generation to go, and I was actually the first to go and graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it meant more to me for those that came after me than it did for the here and now. So I didn't even visit the school at all. Um, I talked to the counselor on the phone. He actually flew from South Carolina to Philadelphia. A couple of my closest friends who all received full scholarships were still friends to this day um, and presented us with the scholarship. And I told him I didn't want to visit because I knew that if I went down and visited and didn't like it, I wouldn't come back. Mm. And in order to maximize my opportunities there and to maximize the impact of that blessing that I received, because not a lot of people can say that they have uh, a bachelor's degree with no debt. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. And then given the context of the military and the platform in which, you know, we hold, I'm about to get my master's degree and then, you know, work on my PhD and the yeah. Navy's going to pay for it. So your, your motive was, uh, or your, your way to go into it was Geronimo, just all in. Cause if I don't, if I don't like it, then I may not get another opportunity. Absolutely. So what was it like in, in that school? Uh, the first year was rough. Um, I didn't really have much freedom growing up. Um, in terms of just doing whatever it is that I wanted to do. I went to my first club the day before I went to college at 18. Yeah. Um, so I had never been in that type of atmosphere. Um, so my freshman year, um, I actually almost lost my scholarship. Um, and that, to me, was my wake-up call. Um, I was just attending every single party that was a party. I was there. Yeah. You know what I mean? I started drinking when I was in college. This um, was in South Carolina? Yes. Where, where again? Uh, Denmark. Where is that? Um, just just uh, a little bit of a geographic. So uh, the University of South Carolina, Gamecocks, yeah. Yeah. at Columbia, yeah. it's about an hour from there. Okay, okay, yeah. I got you. Um, so uh, just kind of traveling around, and then I joined my fraternity, um, which was you know the the greatest ex- one of the greatest experiences um, of my life. But it, it grounded me and allowed me to understand that yes, you can still have fun, but again, education is paramount. Yeah. So you have to stay focused. And uh, one of my mentors pulled me to the side and said, hey your grade point average can be a lot higher than what it is and you need to focus and almost losing that scholarship is what you know gave me the the will to push forward because like I said I didn't visit at all so literally freshman orientation week was my first time stepping on the campus yeah. and I'm a city boy <laughs> all the way through and through really? yeah. now I'm down in the rural country <laughs> uh, you know we got gnats we got deer <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean I'm like whoa what is See, this well, atmosphere stuff, yeah. you know what I'm saying so <laughs> yeah. I'm like, whoa, I've never, like, literally face-to-face with a deer. Like, hi, (laughs) my name's Carl. So, Carl. (laughs) So, uh, but ultimately, you didn't finish school, right? And then you joined the Navy? Oh, college? No, 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 I graduated college. Oh, you did? Yeah, I graduated. um, I graduated um, in 2014. Okay. um, And then I joined um, a teaching organization. uh, Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I joined that teacher organization. In, what was uh, your degree in again? Uh, mass communications. Okay. Um, so from there... This all makes sense. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it reads like a book. Yeah. Um, so uh, I had some experiences with the principal uh, of the school that I was working at, and um, I reached out to the organization for some assistance, and I just really did not like the uh, manner in which they were going about the situation, um, and I felt very targeted. Um, I was... Uh, one of two black male teachers in the building Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the things that were said 
from other teachers and other staff members, you know, directed toward me. And I, Explain to us what that was, because you don't have to say the name if you don't want to, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think the listener understands, like, what that, uh, what was that, like, what were you doing, actually? Like, this was a job? This was your, was going to be your career? Or yes. Was, yeah. So, uh, again, I keep saying education is paramount, because it is. Sure. Um, so, my passion is mentoring. So, yeah. I figure, how can I blend both my passion in mentoring and education? Go be a teacher. Okay. Um, so I was a middle school, sixth and seventh grade English teacher. Okay. Um, in North South Carolina, um, and I was, you know, kind of refraining from the organization in the school, just you know, f- you know. Yeah, for, you don't have to say this. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. but there were some instances where, um, uh, I was at the school. I started in August, so August, September, October. In October, I was voted Teacher of the Month by the students. Mm-hmm. Now, I not only served as a teacher, but I was also a middle school football coach. Oh, cool. Um, so I got access to the high school boys as well um, in, in terms of mentoring um, to be able to, you know, reach out to them, motivate them, encourage them through the game of football, sure. which is what I love. Um, I like football too, man. Absolutely. I, yeah, I was a defensive end. So. Okay, okay. I was quarterback and middle linebacker. There you go. Yeah. Oh, so you were the all-star. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't necessarily know my all-star. I was good, you know. Um, I grew up in Texas, man. If you didn't play oh. football, that's – Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and tra- track was my uh, – well, track is my overall love, but football was my first love. Gotcha. Um, so from there – So um, in the school, yeah. Some of the uh, um, Caucasian teachers – really didn't like the fact that um, that I had won and um, they questioned my integrity uh, used a few racial slurs during a couple of our meetings you know um, you know uh, something into I think there was a, a reference about you know monkeys shouldn't be at the zoo or so, something to the effect of that really? and you know there was the that was the very first time that in my life I had ever been met with such blatant racism yeah and you know with the principal being present in the room, me being the person that I am, and I actually had an experience a few days ago um, as well with this uh, similar uh, situation, but what I realized in that moment is that me being aggressive or me being violent was not going to help the situation. So I always try to meet things with intelligence, and then once I see that there's a lack of intelligence, then I remove myself. Yeah. So I, at the, in that moment, gave the principal an opportunity to step up and say something, to which he was quiet, to which I challenged him first. And then the teacher, uh, excuse me, sir, um, this is what you're going to allow in your, you know, your school. Yeah. And to which I was met with, you know, very, you know, minuscule excuses and things of that nature. So then I, you know, directed toward the teacher, you know, the, the crazy part about this school, well, not crazy, but the way that they operated with their teacher of the month. Most schools, what they do is they vote amongst the staff. Mm-hmm. This school, they vote amongst the students. So to me, it meant a lot more that the high school as well as middle school students thought enough of me to win by a large margin (laughs) to teachers who had been there 10, 15, some 20 plus years, who to me, after analyzing why I was so effective, so a little snapshot from August to October, I brought my sixth graders up from uh, fifth grade reading level uh, up to grade level, sixth grade. I brought my seventh graders from a fourth grade reading level to an eighth grade reading level. And that was all based on class participation. Literally, that was it. Having them read out loud, encouraging them when other students would talk down to a student. No, 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 that's not what we do. Creating an atmosphere that was of excellence so that students felt welcomed, students felt like, you know, they were valued, and that their intelligence was put more so in the forefront than, you know, uh, different uh, nefarious acts that, you know, a child may put on to the point where I no longer had to check a student. Students would check other students. 
You know, like, how dare you joke in Mr. Highland's class? Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, we're trying to learn here. You know, uh, bring him up to the board. I had this uh, class creed, um, and it said, uh, this is our class. Uh, I am responsible for my education. I will give respect to get respect. I am responsible, and I am a champion. And in the beginning, it was kind of corny to the kids. They didn't yeah. really, you know, yeah. latch on to it. But after a while, you could literally see, Mr. Highland, can I lead it? Oh, absolutely. Yes, you can. And I had a good mix of students. Um uh, between um, Caucasian and African American, there was one uh, Hispanic uh, in the entire school, um, and uh, we did a great job at engaging one another. And uh, they taught me about hunting. Um, they taught me about fishing. You know, <clears throat> I'm reminded of two books that I just read. Uh, exactly what you did in that school. Uh, the first one would be uh, Ray Dalio's Principles, where he talked about creating a meritocracy. Right. So mm -hmm. meritocracy. So in the military. It used to be somewhat of a dictatorship, but it's not anymore, right? Like we've we've gotten away from that, where we, uh, with millennials, like everybody has to have ownership, we have, mm -hmm. you know, which is a good thing, right? And also as a military, we're a lot more diverse than we were 19 years ago. Which, Absolutely. I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast, but the diversity has really strengthened us, honestly, uh, in super powerful. Uh, but in Simon Sinek's book that I'm reading, uh, Leaders Eat Last. Mm. He talks about, uh, like in business, a lot of it's military, but some of it's civilian uh, businesses too. But he talks about like the reason we call businesses companies because it's all about the company, the mm. company you keep, right? And so right. it's it's the people, it's the you know, it's the uh, it's the environment. So it's the right. meritocracy and the so those two books just kind of ring out you know, like the meritocracy of Ray Dalio's business and. Simon Sinek's uh, talk about, you know, it's the company, it's the right. people, it's the... Absolutely. Yeah, so you created that in the classroom. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. to me was most important. Um, and then, you know, uh, from there, like I said, you know, I reached out to the organization that I came in under, um, two of my leaders of that organization who were Caucasian as well, um, told them about my experience, um, to which I was met with no help. Yeah. Um, to which... Um, well, were they afraid to help or they just didn't want to help because they were also racist? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I ponder that from time to time. Um, and a few of them that actually wanted to encourage me to stay are no longer there, which to me kind of begs the question, where was your loyalty really at? Yeah. You know what I mean? In, in terms of opportunity. Um, yeah, if they weren't worried about keeping their job, then they should have spoke out. And you know what I mean? Yeah, all um, right. So when I realized from the organization, because it's a very uh, prominent organization, I reached out to some of my African-Americans that were friends that were teachers as well through the program to kind of see if they were having similar experiences in the areas that they were in. Because we were all in South Carolina. Mm. It just depended on, you know, what city that you were in. And a couple of them had the very same experience. They just chose to stick with it. Now, my family, the majority of them are military, mm. mostly Army and Air Force. Okay. Um, my grandfather was the only person that, for me, mentor-wise, that was in the Navy, um, but he didn't stay in long. Um, and I never really had a relationship with him. And I didn't find that out until he passed anyway. Oh, um, really? So for me, I knew I was going to join the military. I just didn't know what branch. Um, and uh, You were going to join the military because you were not happy where you were. No, no, no. Just more so on the family aspect of it. Because okay. uh, the commitment for teaching was two years. Uh, oh, I don't know gotcha. if I mentioned that. Yeah the, yeah, the commitment for teaching was two years. So after that, I was planning on joining the military. So it was always a goal of yours. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. Just because, again, you know, um, well, honestly, just because uh, I, I've always wanted to attach myself to things that are bigger than me and greater than me and then have an impact for, to those that came before me. 
and those that, you know, either worked for me or worked alongside of me. And I, I always try to, the quote that comes to mind is that you treat the janitor with the same respect as the CEO. Yeah. So coming into the Navy, um, being a bosun mate, for those of you that don't know, um, once you become a, a, an E4, a petty officer third class, you become a supervisor. So now you not only have onus of work responsibilities, but you literally have these people's lives in your hands. That's right. With the evolutions that we do and, you know, the, the jobs that we do and things of that nature. And to me, being even, a supervisor is more than just... their personal lives, too. There we go. Yeah. It's more than just what you do while we're at work. Yeah. It's, can I call you at 3 o'clock in the morning because I just got a divorce? Yep. Can I call you at, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon because my child just busts their head wide open and I need to ride to the hospital? Yep. Those types of experiences, to me, separate a supervisor from a manager. Yeah. And the... the um, I, I, would, I would argue that. That separates a leader uh, from anybody else. Mm. Okay. You know okay. I, mean? I can rock because, with that. Because any other reason, you know, you're doing it out of obligation. Right. You know, like I get my phone number, I get my email out, I tell people to call me 24 seven, and this has probably been an awakening in the last five years. This podcast isn't about me, but that's that's true leadership, and also that's that's bound by uh, an effort of service. Right. Which is what you're explaining. Absolutely. Is that you're about service, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a manager manages projects. They, they, the people come last, you know, and a supervisor does that during working hours, right? A supervisor, mm. but a leader, a mentor, those people do it out of sheer will. Absolutely. You know, in a, in a, I always talk about intent, like you could mess up, you could do something wrong, you mm -hmm. could foul up a project, but if your intentions are pure, if you come from a place where your intention was to do the very best to help that person or to you know conduct this evolution in a safe manner and, and get it done you know if your intentions are pure like i can i can work with that right? absolutely you know uh, not not to argue but oh no i like that yeah, that's good yeah i'm definitely the kind of the, guy that's going to tell you those yeah. those are the types <laughs> yeah. of things that you and to be open enough and yeah. that was one of the and i'm glad you mentioned that because that was one of the things that the navy opened my eyes to being able to understand different perspectives you know, even if it's not something that I'm readily used to identifying with. Yeah. So that just changed my perspective. I like that. Yeah. So now it's like, okay, now I can change my verbiage, right? So now I can reach more people. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, because you, you might not think just because, you know, you look a certain way or you talk a certain way or you walk a certain way that this person is intelligent or this person can change your mind. Dude, the Navy. So I, I grew up uh, in, a, in a black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother's gay. Okay. Uh, so for me. My brother as well. Is that right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Steve, I love you, bro. Uh, <laughs> Corey, I love you, bro. <laughs> like, that automatically removed any ability for me to be prejudiced. So, like, mm. I came into the military unable. Like, it just it didn't even occur to me. Right. Uh, and then I got thrust into, like, I didn't know what a Filipino. I'd never met uh, a Vietnamese person. Wow. You know, like, a friend of mine uh, who's been on the podcast was Filipino, so I had some exposure to that culture. But... You know, there were a lot of different cultures, so you get this, like, automatic, I mean, you, you don't have a choice. Like, No, you don't. <laughs> you're standing shoulder to shoulder with people that, like you said, your lives depend on. Absolutely. Uh, so if they're Chinese, uh, black, gay, Native American, shipmate, I need you to hold this unrep station correct. Facts. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, Absolutely. I don't have time to worry about where you come from right now. Right. right? Uh, so that, that is one of the blessings. Uh but anyway, so why why Bosomate? Bosomate. So for me, 
Um, I actually well, so sorry. So you left the school. You decided mm-hmm. because of the extreme racism there that that just wasn't, and you were only going to do your time there anyway. And so right. then you knew you were going to join the military, the Navy. Why Bosme? Um, Bosme. So <clears throat> uh, came in undesignated. Yeah. Um, I actually uh, attempted to go officer. Um, I uh, initially signed up for aviation, and then I realized that you have to fly real planes in the real sky, and I was like, I'm good. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to switch to supply. However, my officer recruiter, um, I guess, never got my message um, that I wanted to switch tests. So I went to go take the exam, and um, I actually ended up taking the wrong exam and failing by one point, but I put my 30 days in at my job already. So, excuse me, my recruiter said, hey, listen. Um, I know you put your 30 days in. I can get you in E3 undesignated. You know, you'll serve, you know, your boot camp time and then you'll get to the fleet and then, you know, you can strike for E4 in six months. At that time, when I came in in 2015, your boot camp time counted with your six months. So technically, I was only undesignated for two months. Okay. Um, I really liked um, what Bosa Mates brought to the table in terms of hard work and dedication. Now, granted, you know, some people say, oh, well, you'll get that anywhere. To me, being a BOSA mate, the I had a lot of um, BOSA mates, then I had a lot of petty officers. And to me, a BOSA mate is someone that is truly prideful in the work that they do. They don't just paint, they create. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They don't just chip, you know, they destroy. I you like know what that. I mean? Yeah. So it's just like, you know, the people that I had, I, I call it how I was raised in the Navy. Um, I was raised with pride. So in the evolutions that we do. So for example, one of my favorite evolutions um, was man overboard not necessarily picking someone up out the water because I would hate to have to do that so um, man overboard is if uh, a sailor goes over the side the ship uh, goes to basically an emergency situation where they put a small boat in the water right uh, to in, in an expeditious manner the man the man's got to be out of the water before hypothermia sets in right yeah. so you know from there you know getting out on station you know getting the lines down you know getting the boat to the rail those types of things because I always thought that what if it were me you know what I mean? In terms of our anchoring evolutions, when we have to drop the anchor, you know, are we doing, you know, the, the most uh, safe, safely efficient, are we doing it the most safely and efficient way possible to ensure that no lives are lost? The Bosmate rating, I mean, we could talk about this because a lot of our listeners are Bosmates. Okay. Um, or DEC LDOs or warrant officers. Uh, you know, my, that's my network, right? <laughs> right, right, right. The Bosmate rating is steeped in tradition and pride. Mm-hmm. So, for example... Uh, we have crossed paths on baton, but we didn't really know each other. Right. But I knew you were a boss mate. You're my brother. Automatically, you know, we get that. We have that. I don't think any other rate operates that way. You know right. what I mean? And I've been in the wardroom too, and I don't think the chief's mess does operate that way. The chief's mess is like, you're a chief, you're my brother. Right. You know, uh, because you've gone through an initiation. But the boss mate rating has an initiation, I mean, Please do not assume that I'm trying to make it like we're SEALs or anything. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But there is some initiation process that happens just in being a bosun mate. Absolutely. You know, the Navy SEALs go through buds. And I'm not saying being a bosun mate is anywhere as hardcore or any, you know. Right. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's similar in nature in that you had to go through the school of hard knocks. Like, nobody gave you the authority, the responsibility, or the, uh, the equipment to conduct dangerous evolutions unless you earned it. Absolutely. Thousand percent. Absolutely. You had to want it. Like, Absolutely. If, if you didn't want it, if you didn't want to earn it, uh, if you weren't coming up to me saying, you know, hey, Chief, hey, Bosun, hey, AFL, hey, OIC, 
I'm ready to assume this responsibility as unrepresented captain. I understand the process. You know, sign my PQS. You know, so there's there's an innate uh, tradition and there's an innate um, requirement for you to get to where you're even called boats. Absolutely. Right? You know what I'm saying? So like, once you're called boats, uh, you know the rest of that stuff does, I guess, trickle up in right. a way. Um, but still, I mean, when I was a lieutenant and I looked at a boatswain mate with a lanyard and a sheath and spike, and a, you know, was running his evolution. I mean, I didn't look at that dude as a BM3. I looked at him as that dude handling business. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Like, rank didn't matter. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And that that to me is what drew me in. Yeah. Um, I originally right. wanted to be a, a mass communication specialist, an MC. You'd be um, very good at that too. Uh, I, I do believe so, um, yeah. but I do believe that you know the boatswain rate, like you said, it allows us to do more than just. I think the atmosphere of danger is what brings us together so close. Yeah. Because literally, and I tell people this, you can die on station. Yeah, for sure. Literally. Now, granted, you know, same with the flight deck, same with you know um, being down in central, you know, something go wrong, flooding, whatever the case may be. But we're literally confronted with danger on such a consistent basis. Yeah. And if I can't trust. That putting you as, you know, anchor POIC or putting you as, you know, uh, uh, rig captain or putting you as David operator, you know, those types of, oh, I'm sorry, David captain, those types of things. Then it's just like, I don't want to be on station with you, nor do I want you out on station. So I have the wherewithal to say, hey, chief or hey, BM1, this person does not need to be leading this evolution because they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they can get people hurt. Yeah. You know, and when people see that you genuinely care about them far beyond the realm of just work. That, to me, is what allows them to work harder for you. The, the bottom line is this. People don't work hard for people they don't like. They yeah, do the bare right. minimum. Yeah. They do enough to get by so that they're not ridiculed for their performance or lack thereof. You but, know, another thing I would say about specifically the busmate rating is that uh, a lot of people that come into the busmate rating came in undesignated. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I myself, my dad was a busmate. My grandfather was a busmate. So I wanted to oh, be wow. a busmate. Yeah, I was third. Yeah, son of a son of a sailor. Oh, um, nice. But, uh, you know, a lot of people come into Boatsmate because they can't do anything else. You know, uh, like I came in with a G Well, I don't know that I could have done anything else either, actually. Like, <laughs> I had a GED. Uh, I had a drug waiver for smoking marijuana before I joined the Navy. Okay. Uh, I had an assault charge where we don't need to go on all the details. But I had a lot of waivers, so I don't know that I could have done anything else either. Um, and so it's an opportunity for these people to grow maybe coming from circumstances where they're trying to escape. Right. You know what I mean? And then, um, you know, like you said, you're, you're thrust in these environments of leadership, mm -hmm. uh, specifically with our rate at a young age. So a BM3 is comparable to, you know, an SK1 or an LS1. Right. In, in my opinion. You know what right. I mean? Because that, that woman or man is already uh, executing extremely important Absolutely. And my BM1s, they, they taught us from BMSing. I mean, as BM3s, we're writing evals. You know, yeah. we're writing counseling chits. You know, we're recommending people to go to mass. Not that, you know, that was something that I wanted to do, but it, it showed us that leadership goes far beyond what your rank is. Yeah, that's right. You know, leadership to me is based on the individual sheer will to lead people. I'm, I'm working on an article I'm going to write for USNI, and, I, and uh, it's specifically about that, like how... Uh, we, and I have a unique experience coming from E1, E7, to lieutenant, back to chief, and then now, like, I don't even know where my future is, but 
it's right. going to be good. Uh, but so with that unique experience, like I used to worry about rank so much. Mm. And, and, and for people that aren't in the military, this will relate to you too, like with job title, like whatever mm-hmm. that title is, right? So you're the manager, you're the, you're the systems director, you're the tech assist, like whatever right. that is, right? We worry so much about rank uh, and structure that we forget about ability, Absolutely. right? We forget about aptitude. Uh, I, please do not think I'm right. Like I'm super humble. Like I'm probably the humblest dude you'll ever meet, man. But I have potential. Like I'm qualified officer of the deck on an aircraft carrier and an LSD. I'm a chief petty officer. That is dope. You know what I'm saying? I wear a SWO pin, which right. means I know about SM2 missiles. You know what I mean? Like right. I, but I'm a chief petty officer, right? So you know, like, does that mean because I'm a chief now that I don't have that potential or that capability to? Go drive an aircraft carrier? Right. Most definitely not. I can go do that tomorrow, and so could you. Right. BM2 could do that. Absolutely. I'm not any smarter at 38 than you are, how old are you? 27. I'm not any smarter than you are. I just had that experience. So if given the opportunity and the, and the, the ability to go learn these things. You either rise to the occasion or crumble under the pressure. So, yeah, that's it. That, that, that's re- that, re- that sums up the Boltzmann rate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, really but, and truly. We, we limit ourselves and we limit others Indeed. Uh, you know, if we, like, we could bring it back to racism. We limit people based on, like, okay, well, if this person's a different color than me, like, I don't trust them. Or, right. You know, if this person's a different gender, like, women in combat, like, right. you know, I'm all for women in combat as long as we don't lower the standard. Absolutely. Maintain the standard. If a woman can pass that standard, get some. Absolutely. Diversity is great. Uh, but we limit people and we limit ourselves, too, I think. Like, a lot of us say, well, I'm just a... Mm-hmm. I'm just a, I'm just a, a skinny female that can't, you know, can't survive in this man's world or whatever, right. whatever that thing is. Like, I think it goes into checking your bias. My mentors, uh, when I was in college, um, shout out to Jamie Bradford. She was one of the best uh, professors that I ever had. Um, and she would always say, check your bias at the door. Yeah. And it wasn't until I graduated that I truly, like you understand in the moment, but you don't understand the lesson. Until you actually begin to apply it. Mm. And, you know, to me, check your bias at the door essentially means that sometimes there are ideologies and uh, things that we hold on to that we don't even realize are ideologies. Yeah. And when you encounter someone that is different than what you're used to, oftentimes that is where your backlash and or your differences come in. Oh, I can't listen to you because you're different than me. So therefore, I'm either going to call you crazy because I don't understand you. Or I'm going to attach myself to you because you're interesting. Yeah, and also we, some of us, tend to Mm over-identify, right? So we over-identify that, uh, so you're a human being, not a human doing, Mm. right? So, Mm. you know, like, you over-identify, you over-identify with this, uh, you know, this, this is what I am. So, like, when you walked in, I didn't say BM2, my name's Chief Bayless, right? Like. I'm Jeff. You're Anthony. You're in my house. Right. Right. You're a human being. You're not. You're not what your title says you are. Right. You know. You're not. Uh, like I used to over-identify as an Ironman distance triathlete, and I over-identified that like, so other things suffered. My family. Uh, I was making poor decisions. I had suicidal ideations. Like I wasn't. I wasn't dealing with anything because I was so worried about. What everybody else thought, and what this i you know this idea of who I am, mm. or, or what I am, not who I am, right, right, 
Um, so I think that, uh, to your point, if we can kind of get more worried about who we are, mm-hmm. then we'll see others in a in a better light. Absolutely. Right, and then we then we can be more impactful leaders <clears throat> too because we can see okay, this is who this person really is. Right. You know, these are the things they're doing, but this is who they really are, and this is how I can help them. Right. And then you know, also sharing ideas is a lot of people. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox now. It's your podcast. But, <laughs> no, that's all good. You know, a lot of people uh, <clears throat> are so afraid to share the knowledge. Right, right, right. So afraid to share um, because if if they do, like, you know, this is one thing I know in the Boston Bay, right? We do not do this. Like, we share knowledge. Like, right. We share the books. We share the pubs. You know, the good leaders always share so that, you know, it's about raising people up. Right, you know, and in my brightest, I, I got interviewed for a uh, Veterans Day thing from the USO, and they were like, "What's your what's your favorite medal or award or citation that you ever received?" I was like, "Man, it would have to be the promotion of all my sailors." Like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, I don't care about these this chest candy stuff. Like, I, my first initial reaction was my swell pin. Mm. That was my first reaction. But I didn't say it because I thought about it for a minute. I was like, yeah, but I'd give that away if five sailors could make a ring. Right. I would. I'd take it off my chest right now. Like, that's not just me saying that. Like, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I would take it off my uniform, never wear it again, and not ever – I wouldn't sign my stuff, swole, like, whatever, man. If I could promote five sailors, I'd take it off my chest. That's dope. And that's that's really what, you know, kind of the awakening was. Anyway, I got on a rabbit hole. I'm sorry, man. Oh, no, that's all good. That's all good. Um, so, what's your future look like in the Navy? So, my ultimate goal um, is to become PAO, Public Affairs Officer, um, because I, I, I truly do believe that the impact um, that I can have with the speaking abilities um, that God has given me, um, as well as mentorship abilities um, across the Navy, um, will be maximized in that position, ultimately. Um, right now, a PAO um, is a public affairs officer. Explain to us what that means. Like, what does that what does that look like for you? Um, so, essentially, um, serving as the median uh, medium, rather um, that disseminates um, pictures, videos, interviews, um, different things that are going on. And right now, my ship is going through a cybersecurity awareness month. Um, so, they're disseminating information in terms of tips on how to, you know, keep yourself, you know, decent on social media as a member of the armed forces. Um, you have different, uh, they're going to come to X right okay. now, um, preparing for deployment. Um, so a lot of the pictures that are being taken, the MCs are taking those pictures. So as a PAO, you're mentoring those MCs on, you know, how to get the good shots or, you know, what types of interviews to do. How do you maximize the impact of those interviews? Um, how best to carry themselves um, in terms of, you know, being public figures? Because I truly do believe that MCs and PAOs are public figures on a ship especially when you're putting a camera in someone's face or you're standing in front of a camera doing promotion of any sort. Yeah. Um, and I truly do believe that every time, you know, that microphone comes on or every time that camera begins rolling, you have a responsibility. And what you do with that responsibility is ultimately up to you. You know, I could see myself, you know, in the White House or, or on Capitol Hill or, you know, whatever the case may be, giving a brief, uh, you know, about something and, you know, really and truly public speaking is my passion. And to be able to do that and maximize it on a military level to me would be like, the cat's meow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I truly do love the Bosomay rate. Uh, right now, I'm setting my eyes on uh, making chief. Um, I'm BM2 right now. 
I made the third off the exam, second off the exam as well. And that was another thing um, that drove me to the BM rate, making it off the exam. Yeah. Um, because it truly allowed you to test the, the depth of your knowledge yeah. and the respect that you got as a result of it. Like, okay, this person made it off the test. Like, you don't just make it off the test not knowing anything. That's right. You know what I mean? And, you know, your junior sailors see that, you know, and they, wow, BM2, okay. You know, it, a lot of people uh, on the platform that I was on, I was on the LHD, um, they look at uh, BM3s as BM2s and BM2s as BMCs. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, when I came in uh, to my ship, uh, my BM2s ran everything. Every evolution, every eval debrief, every, you know, career development board. You know, if you got to see BM1 or BMC, you messed up. Yeah, Back, that's right. Back you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, you know, they, to me, those <clears throat> individuals should be focused on, you know, advancing their career. Of course, helping their junior sailors. But their primary focus as a BM2, you know, hey, my, my BM1 should be focused on making chief. Or my chief should be focused on developing, you know, those BM1s and developing our trainings and things of that nature in order for us to become more fruitful sailors. But those BM2s, you know, are the ones that are, you know, mentoring these BM3s. And, you know, the platform that I was on, we had 27 BM3s which is almost unparalleled because so many of us made it at the same time. Uh, we had nine, nine BM2s and five BM1s. And then one chief, and then one of the BM1s made chief, um, and then one senior chief. So from there... And it, I know all those khaki guys. Man. Yeah. Man. They're, I mean, they're all friends of mine. It was, yeah. you know, just such Actually, a... Actually, your XO is a good friend of mine, too. Okay, okay. Um, the, the trickle down of knowledge from there was just, you know, it, it was immeasurable. Um, and, and like I said, you know, I just love the community and I just love, you know, what we do. And like you said, in terms of giving each other that knowledge, uh, my buddy, um, shout out to BM2 Brooks. Um, he's over at um, uh, Deep Herm. We studied together literally nonstop for three months straight. Yeah. And we would be on our aisle studying. Hey, man, you want to ask us some questions? Ask us some questions. You know, we would ask them some questions when he would be up on watch. Hey, bro, what you know about such and such? Oh, I don't know nothing about that. Oh, you need to get in that 581. Or you need to get in that 582. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, our, you know, and we pushed each other to be successful. Yeah. And you know that is something that to me, um, you can take anywhere. And I feel like both mates have the most versatility in terms of what they could do longevity-wise in the Navy because we're put into positions where we have to push persevere. We're put into positions where we have to be versatile. I have to be able to understand. I worked as RPPO and DCPO. Yeah, there's not a there's not a book that can teach you grit. No, no, and, and yeah. to be honest, in the beginning, I used to think that there was, but there's a difference between grit and will. Oh. You can have the will, but not the grit. Oh yeah, sure. Grit is deep. Yeah, grit comes from a place of I'm gonna get it. Have you uh, have you read anything? Um, oh, I forget the author now, but uh, the hero's journey sounds familiar. So the hero's journey. Christopher Douglas? Christopher McDougal? Ah, the, uh, the Hero's Journey. Okay. So, basically what it talks about is uh, through a... He talks about a man's life, but this this relates to men and women, but it's a, it's a diagram, right? Mm-hmm. And in this diagram, there are several steps along the way, like seeking adventure and seeking knowledge, and like there's all these phases of your life, right? Mm-hmm. But the Hero's Journey, journey at some point has a struggle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and then after the struggle is the awakening. Absolutely. And so, like, if you look at it on a diagram, they, they can't see my hand in movies. But, like, basically there's a, there's a downward spike mm-hmm. uh, where the struggle happens, but then the awakening is higher than the path was before, right? So with the awakening, you're more elevated. And like Maslow would say, you're self-actualized, right? Self-actualized, yep. Yeah, so <clears throat> to relate it to the Buzzmate rating, like, 
every day, well, not every day. I don't, I don't want to make the Navy and most of my ratings seem like it's a struggle, but <laughs> it's difficult. It's challenging situations. Indeed. And so, you know, you're going to, you're going to eventually learn that perseverance through adversity. You're going to learn that adaptive uh, quality. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're going to, you're going to make chief. I'm going to help you with your package. Absolutely. You're going to reach out. Uh, and then you're going to put in that PAO package. Absolutely. And you're looking to make a career out of the Navy. Absolutely. And uh, that just for as long as it's fun or? For as long as I can. Yeah. Um, I used to say that, oh, I'm just going to do my 20 and get out. Um, my, my oldest brother who was at, um, he just hit 17 years. Um, he just got sent back to Afghanistan. I think it's his sixth tour in Afghanistan. Um, no, no, no. I'm sorry. He's in Kosovo now. Um, he told me take it by every four. Yeah. You know, uh, he was like, you know, I'm going to be honest, I didn't think I would make it this far. Yeah. You know, um, I was just going to ask you, like, what if the Navy told you tomorrow you got to go? I do believe that, you know, I have the the sheer willpower to be successful um, outside of the military if, um, if, if in fact, that was, um, um, that were to happen. Um, I've been speaking professionally for the last six years. Yeah. Um, and I talk a lot about leadership, persevering through adversity, um, confidence, the, the poem that I shared in the beginning, um, overcoming uh, suicide, um, because that, you know, different uh, aspects of your life. And you talked about that struggle and that awakening. Um, for me, that was my awakening um, after that, you know, suicide attempt to understand that the people that you. What caused the suicide attempt? <clears throat> uh, my uh, aunt died in front of me. And uh, kind of went back to school a little bit too early. Um, I didn't really, uh, I guess, mentally deal with it well enough. And in the public school system, you can't tell a kid you're going to kill them. Because then they'll give you what's called a 302 and put you into essentially a crazy hospital. And, you know, I feel more confident to be able to talk about it now. I used to be embarrassed by it. But it is what it is at this point. Um, and I was put into um, a uh, mental hospital. which Well, I there's, there's power and vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah, like I'm extremely vulnerable now. And that's the only way you can help anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, and like I said, you know, I, I knew I didn't belong there. Um, I just kind of, like I said, I didn't deal with it, you know, as uh, as much as I felt like I should have. And uh, nobody in my family came to visit me. Um, and then toward the end of my stint there, the only two people that did um, was my oldest brother's ex-wife, who was my sister, and my now current wife. Um, yeah. Well, my, my one and only wife. I'm going to say current wife. She was the, wasn't that another wife? <laughs> no, 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 no. My only wife. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just reached a really low place. And uh, I was just like, you know, well, if they don't care about me, then I don't care about me. You know, and, uh, you know, like I talked about in the poem, I took a sheet and uh, wrapped it around my neck and just kept pulling. And I figured, you know, if they don't care, why should I? But when you limit oxygen to your brain and there's not an external force, you're just going to pass out. But in that moment and in that uh, situation, I realized waking up and seeing all of those people standing around me um, that I truly didn't think cared about me at all. And the, just the outpouring of love was just more so the people that you sometimes want to be in your life. The reality is that they're never going to be there. You know, sometimes they you know resurface and, you know, come back. But uh, from my experience, we long for relationships that sometimes that we know but refuse to accept will never be there. Such as, you know, my father never being around. I'll never, I'll never meet him. Yeah. Uh, unless he reveals himself to me, which, I mean, at this point, just for, you know, for the listeners, you know, he's passed away. Um, 
And my, you know, my mother revealed that to me a few years ago, but I never had a relationship with him. So the reality is that I never had a relationship with him. And then when I did find out about him, it was to find out about his death. So I'll literally never have a relationship with him. So what does it profit me for the rest of my life to be angry and upset that I never had a relationship with him when I can be appreciative of the mentors and the positive male figures in my life that have allowed me to become a better human, yeah. a better man, a better husband, a better father, those types of things. And sometimes we latch on to our pain and we don't really seek that healing because we identify just with that pain. Yeah. But I asked this question on my um, on my Facebook uh, a couple months ago, and it literally in like thirty minutes got over like five hundred comments. It's like four thousand shares, and I literally asked a simple question: Who are you outside your pain? And it's a very valid question because a lot of us identify specifically with whatever it was that we struggled or you know had to go through, and we know nothing past that. You know, coming into the military, I realized that you know there's nothing wrong with getting therapy. You know, there's nothing wrong with oh, sitting down with someone yeah. and, you know, talking to someone about the things. I say that you've all the time, uh, the only way out is through. Absolutely. The only way out is through. If you don't, if you ignore that problem, it's just going to get bigger with time. You know, not dealing with problems doesn't help. And then, you know, that therapy or that, even if it's just like the fellowship or the conversation or, mm -hmm. you know, that the only way out is through. And, you know, exactly what you said, uh, I mean, that's spot on, man. That's good advice for anybody uh, that over-identifies with, you know, trauma. Uh, because we all have traumatic events. Absolutely. Okay, now what? It, there we go. Okay, now what? There we go. You know, are you going to live in that memory for the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, <clears throat> I'm going on this trip. Uh, it's called Nostos, and it's a long story. But the whole, the whole uh, idea, it's a sailing trip where they... Uh, or I've been invited. Hopefully I get to go. I'd, I'd be very humbled if I get the opportunity. It's not really open up to guys like me and you. But I, I know some people that have been generous enough to invite me. And I couldn't make it last time. But I'm going to make it happen this time. And basically what it talks about is like, you know, following your true north. Mm. In spite of everything. You know, so, okay, you're transitioning from the military. Okay, you have this, you know, background in this thing or that thing. But like, what is your true calling? What is your true north? Like, what do you really want to do with your life? What, what, what would you like to? So, you know, what inspire that? You know, what the definition of inspire is is to breathe life, mm. to breathe life into something. So, what would you like to breathe life into? Right. You know, and if you're hung up in all that pain and anger and resentment and trauma, you can't breathe life into anything, nope. <laughs> including yourself, but others. Right. You know, once you move through all that stuff, you said it very eloquently too. I'm, I'm only repeating what you said in a different way, but. You're just breathing life uh, into strain. Right. You know, if you can move through the trauma, move through the pain, not ignore it, the only way out is through, then you can breathe life into things like unimaginable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you asked a question earlier, uh, which, which was to me a great segue, um, is if the Navy said today or tomorrow, BM2 Highland, you got to go. Yeah. You know, what do you fall back on? Yeah. Um, so I uh, stepped out on faith and I wrote a book. Um, the yes. Purpose of Power, um, <clears throat> which is uh, available on Amazon, anywhere Amazon books are sold. Um, and I took a lot of those um, influential moments in my life and the lesson that it taught me and what I learned as a result of it and just packaged it all together in one powerful piece of literature um, that has opened up uh, opportunities for me that I never thought possible. Yeah. Um, in this area, I've spoken at ODU. 
um, Hampton University, Christopher Newport University, Tidewater Community College, and the list goes on. Um, and it's not to be arrogant, but it's to say that when you step out on faith, right, and you know that you have a specific calling, like you talked about, and to me, mentoring and you know public speaking are my passions. Like, if I woke up today or tomorrow and you didn't have to pay me nothing, and I could travel the world inspiring and empowering. I don't call myself a motivational speaker because I feel like motivation fades. Empowerment lasts a lifetime yeah. and changes the trajectory of people's lives. Motivation to me is temporary for the moment. You feel good, then eventually you go back to whatever it is that you were doing. But when you can empower someone to change their belief system and or elevate their belief system, not even necessarily change it, because sometimes what happens is people need that it's like an addendum, right? It's like you have your big goal, but what is what is your micro goal to get you to your big goal? And you know, when I go into different colleges, or I go into um, just recently, um, I did some work with uh, United Way. I did a workshop with them, um, uh, persevering through pain, and I talked about obstacles. And to me, um, I'm very metaphoric, so I thought about track, how much I love track, and the hundred meter hurdles. So sometimes what people believe is that if I'm just fast enough, I can just jump over every single hurdle and I can get to my ultimate destination, which is the finish line. However, with proper technique, right, you can get there a lot faster and a lot smoother and your pain isn't the same. Me running up to a hurdle and jumping over it with absolutely no technique hurts a lot more than starting with my lead leg and snapping my second leg over. You know, for, for those, you know, that are uh, track stars, uh, but to me, in terms of my book and where I wanted to go with that, um, I, I said, okay, well, I wanted, uh, uh, I'm going to be a professional public speaker. Okay, how are you going to do that? What are you going to consistently give people that are going to help them understand that you not only want to change people's lives, but you also have been through you know, some things that can help people um, persevere through their pain. Mm-hmm. How, best, how better to do that than to tell my own story? And like you said earlier, be vulnerable in that moment. And in that vulnerability, I got to meet so many people. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, listen to other people's story that, man, really brought me to tears. Uh, one of the stories, and I'm not going to say her name for sake of anonymity, um, but she reached out to me on Facebook. Uh, my book has been on Amazon since 2015, I believe. 2015 or 2016, one of those two years. I actually need to get the exact date so I'm not messing up timelines. However, she reached out to me after I got back from deployment um, in 2017. And she said for 19 years straight, she lived a a great life. However, she just uh, started having seizures out of nowhere. Um, She was researching what her purpose in life was. And she came across my book on Amazon and it gave her the will to live. Yeah. And this was, so <clears throat> for those of you that are not familiar with the Facebook Messenger, for people that are not your friend, you have to accept their request. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize is that it had been sitting up there for like a week. Mm-hmm. Because if they're not my friend, typically I don't even check that. You know what I mean? But this this specific day, I'm like, oh, wow, I got a message request. So I click it and it then I read it. the cracks, yeah. Immediately start crying. Like, wow, this is powerful. Reached out to her. I was like, "Hey, listen, I want to stay updated with you. You know, I, you know, I want to, you know, keep in contact, blah blah." And literally, she was just like, "I was on Amazon. I was looking for a book to read, something to empower me, because you know, I was just at a really low place, and 
um, you know, years later, I found out that she was actually contemplating suicide mm-hmm. because she was just like, you know, I lived this, you know, great life, great health. Then all of a sudden, I just start having these seizures out of nowhere. And I don't know what that experience is like. But I can imagine if you're contemplating suicide, it wasn't a pleasurable experience for you. You know, and to know that something that I put out into the atmosphere was able to help you persevere through that and give you the will to live, not just to go on and, you know, be successful, go through your therapies. No, no, no. To live. When you have that will to live, you're willing to do whatever it takes. Go through the physical therapy. Go through, you know, if you have to go through chemo, whatever the case may be, it gives you that extra oomph, you know, which to me is the separation between motivation and empowerment. You know, uh, I can relate to that, and and I love that. Like everything you said right there, like I love you, brother. Like that was that's exactly uh, what I talk about with intent, right? Like having pure intentions, and uh, I think it's hard to even call it service when you get a text like that, absolutely, or, or when you get a phone call, and uh, you know I've had a few of those, uh, or just a, a genuine hug mm-hmm. from a man that said even a mentor that might tell you like how you've, you know, mm-hmm. you know, another thing is like you sit down and you think you're going to teach somebody something, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to, you're going to mentor them. And if you have an open mind, like the mentorship goes both ways. Absolutely. Right. Like, um, so in that moment when somebody's sharing something with you like that, it's hard to call it service or J O B because it's so damn rewarding. Right. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a feeling you could give me a million dollars and it wouldn't feel as good as that. You can't quantify it. Yeah. You can't at That's all. That's right. Yeah. So the book is called? The Purpose of Power. And it's on Amazon. Absolutely. Uh, tell us about this course at Harvard. Okay. Um, so uh, go doing the public speaking, um, I realized that um, this wave of entrepreneurship um, has been a huge one. And um, the public speaking that I do in the workshops, um, guided you know, from my book, um, is considered an entrepreneur endeavor because it's outside of my normal channel of income. So the Navy pays all my bills. Same here, yeah. Um, so the public speaking that I do, the spoken word performances, all of those types of things are considered to society as extras. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this day and age, now they're being categorized as entrepreneur endeavors. So I said, okay, if I'm going to call myself an entrepreneur, then I need to know the basics of what entrepreneurship is and truly the inner workings of entrepreneurship. So I applied to um, Harvard Business School Online uh, for their course on Entrepreneurship Essentials. Um, And I I learned some great things um, from that um, program and uh, from that course, rather. And uh, anyone that, you know, is listening to this, I definitely uh, encourage you, if you are an entrepreneur of any sort, um, definitely that course. And they have a lot of other courses, but that was the one specifically that I went through. Um, uh, That was very impactful and it taught me how to fund my entrepreneur endeavors. Um, it gave you different, you know, real life examples. For example, Airbnb. Right. Mm-hmm. I often wonder why it was called Airbnb. Right. So B and B used to stand for a bed and breakfast. So there's two uh, two young guys that started their company. Just a little bit of a snapshot. Started their company um, in San Francisco. They're from New York, and um, there was a uh, conference in town. And all of the conferences, the hotels were booked up. So they had some air um, some air mattresses. They thought, wow, what if we rent out our air mattresses? And then they started reaching out to friends that had empty rooms or different rooms in their house. For example, if I said, hey, Jeff, do you have any empty rooms in your house? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have about two empty rooms. There's another one. Uh, it's got a where like you basically can rent out your couch. Yes. Uh, what, I forget what that one's called, but same idea. 
Right. Yeah. Same yeah. same idea. So it <clears throat> blossomed into being in over you know eighty plus countries, mm-hmm. you know over a thousand cities, you know so this this huge platform that they built off of something as simple as providing a service for a need that they saw, yeah. um, and to me that course uh, was like the basic. So I, I follow Sierra the singer um, mm-hmm. on uh, Instagram, and she went through the course, and now her and her husband Russell Wilson, who's the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, they own a soccer team. Um, they're part owners of, uh, of a soccer franchise now. And the entrepreneur endeavors that she was doing, I'm like, wow, okay. Well, if she's making all this money and she still thought to go back and get this, hmm, let me just look into it. Sure. Um, so TA was supposed to pay for it, uh, but my uh, NC was just like, hey, we're at the end of the fiscal year. Um, they're not going to be able to pay for it. You're going to have to come back next semester. So the Navy was going to pay for it. Right. Yeah. So at that moment, it was just like, okay, I'm good. Then a few weeks later, she's like, oh, no, nah, we're not going to be able to pay for it with TA because we're at the end of the fiscal year, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to allow this setback to set me back. So one of my closest friends, he said, you know, with the people that support you on social media, why don't you just post a fundraiser? And I was like, I'm eh, not really sure I want to do that. You know, people always begging, go fund me's and stuff like that. He was like, you know, but it's an intent. You know, we talked about intent, you know. You have the intentions to do good, and people know that, and people see that. So I was like, you know what? Let me try it on my own first. So I raised $500 on my own, um, just organically. Um, some of my money, some from you know friends, uh, some from close family members. Then after that, I was like, you know what? The fundraiser isn't going to hurt me if I do it, you know? So I put it up, um, and in under 48 hours, um, I received all of the money plus $20 extra of what I needed for the total of the course to be able to do it. Yeah, but everybody that gave money, you probably knows that you're coming from a place from good mm-hmm. intentions to where you're going to pay that back in ways that can benefit them. Right. Or or others. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and to me, um, I, 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 the money to me was the minuscule part. The, the part that was most impactful was the messages that I received as a result of seeking this opportunity. You're doing great things. I know you're going to have an impact in the community. Like you said, you know, I know you're going to do, you know, great things in the future, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, those were, to me, what meant more than people just donating money. Because you took the time out to click message, type your message, and then send it. To some people, that may be very small. But to me, for someone that may just be watching me on social media, you know, sometimes... Uh, when you go through uh, your memories, right? You'll see how long you've been friends with the person on social media, specifically Facebook. And I mean, these are people five, six, seven, eight years. And I'm just like, wow, we've been friends that long? And, you know, I've been watching you. I've been listening to your videos and, you know, things of that nature. And you inspire me. Th- those types of things, you know, it, like you said, you can't quantify those moments. Well, and it's an evolution too, right? Absolutely. Hence, hence the podcast, The Evolution. Like, you know, you're growing as a human. Absolutely. You know, you weren't, uh, probably I'm, I'm projecting or making an assumption, but you probably weren't as capable as you are in this day because we're, we're always evolving and growing. And, and uh, with this course, you were able to grow just a little bit more. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I've had a similar experience, but you know, we're always all evolving and growing, and with that extra you know, knowledge you got, you're going to be able to be more impactful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, to, to speak to your, uh, your original question, um, I had to ask myself over the course of my military career, because my uncle actually had a similar experience. 
He had uh, wrecked 16 years in the Air Force, and they just did a massive overhaul of yeah. you know kicking people out. And it was just more so, what do you do afterwards? You know, do you you know fall back or do you fall down? You know, and you know how quickly do you resurface? Um, and from there, one of the things that he told me is that I wish I would have went to school. You know, I wish I would have got all of the you know educational benefits that the military offered instead of just the monetary. He bought two homes. Um, Great, um, great homes. Um, lost one of them, um, and it, you know had to persevere through that. But well, again, you're a human being, not a human doing. So the mm -hmm. military is what you do, right? Absolutely. And, and this is hard for us as military members because we say, "I put this uniform on. I don't even have to decide what clothes I'm wearing today." Right. You know, I wear the flag. I get this automatic service. Mm -hmm. Right. Like even if all I did today was hold sweepers, like <laughs> absolutely, I wore the American flag on my uniform today. So like. You automatically have this uh, ingrained notion of service, but this is what you do, man. Right. Um, and you know, hey, for those listening, I am like the most most mate, most mate. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't mate, I got most mate tattoos up in my arms. So, you know, I I love the Navy. Like I am passionate about the Navy. The Navy told me you're getting out at 20 years, shipmate. Thank you for your service. And I'm actually blessed and lucky that that is what happened, right? Like, it could have gone another way. Absolutely. But I had to, I had to realize that, yeah, I'm a human being. And there are opportunities out there. I mean, you're already taking advantage of those opportunities in your public speaking and, and you know, in the, in the thing, you know, in writing a book and the things you're doing outside of the Navy, which is, which is great to have that balance. Right. Right. Uh, I think balance is really hard for a lot of people. Indeed. Um, and actually, I, I will kind of push back toward that a little bit. And I've been talking to my mentees. I don't typically believe in balance. I believe in rhythm. Okay. Because what may be rhythmic for you may not necessarily be rhythmic for me. And yeah. When you find your. Um, Ooh, I like that. Your, yeah, that's your, good. I kind of relate it to dancing, right? Mm -hmm. To some people, an individual might be a great dancer. But to a person that's been dancing for a very long time, they may be average. Yeah. So to me, I'm like, they're an expert because I can't dance. <laughs> to whereas know, someone that does it professionally, yeah, great, they're yeah. looking at them as a novice. You know what I mean? So, you know. I ran 20 miles this morning. That probably sounds crazy to you. But to me, like, that's where I get all my meditation. That's where I get all my reading. Like, I listen to audio books. Right. Like, that's, man, like, to me, 20 miles just running, like, that's. Normal, right? Yeah. And to me, it's just like, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, it's extreme. It's extreme. Right? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So, you know. No, it, I like that. It, yeah, balance. That's a good one, man. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to write that down. Uh, absolutely. I'll put and, that in the And show. once you find it, um, you know, and I, I kind of take it over to, you know, my marriage. Um, there were things that, you know, we were trying to find a balance of, you know, what she liked versus what I liked of the five love languages. Yeah, um, great I, book. I truly way, do yeah. believe in that, that, you know, kind of transformed, you know, our marriage and allowed us to find our rhythm of what works best for us. Yeah. And some people, oh, they're one and the same. I, it, the only reason why I don't agree with that is because to me, balance is based on um, variables, right? You got the work-life work balance, like the most common balance that they sure, say, the work-life yeah, work balance. balance. How do you balance being at work versus being at home, right? To me, finding the rhythm is how do you move through them on a frequency that is comparable to the life that you live? So for me, every time I hit that brow in the morning, I always say, okay, what happened at home stays in the parking lot. What's happening at work is everything once I get on this quarter day. Because if you can't be present where you are, 
then you're going to allow those things are going to either knowingly or unknowingly are going to spill off into you know the people that you know are working you, for uh, you. Have you read anything by Eckhart Tolle? I have not. All right, so I'm going to leave you with some book okay. stuff. You seem like a nerd like me, so absolutely, um, I love reading. Yeah, so Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Power of Now. Okay. Uh, and he talks about actually it. If you listen to podcasts, Oprah has Eckhart Tolle on all the time. Okay. Um, but he talks about the power of now and being in the moment and recognizing, like, this is what's going on right now. And this is, it's okay to have this emotion or this feeling, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm in the moment, right? So, right. Like, right now I'm jealous. I can't stop from being jealous or angry, right? But this is the power of now. Like, I'm just, the first step in, in like, enlightenment is self-awareness right Mm -hmm. so just understanding the power of now like okay right now i'm grieving or i'm in denial right but understanding the power of now and you can carry that through to your work day too right okay so right now not not really on a good wavelength with my wife or my kid is uh like my son has cerebral palsy and when i found that out like that was crushing right uh Mm. it's, it's not severe and it's not really about that but you know, like it was hard to leave that. It was hard to be present at work when mm-hmm. that was going on or when I was in trouble in the Navy, right? Like I almost got kicked out of the Navy, like for real. Right. It was hard to actually do my job because I, I couldn't, I couldn't be in the now because I was right. so focused on all this stuff that was out of my control. Right. It was out of my control that that path was going to happen autonomously with right. without my permission. Uh, so anyway, Eckhart totally powered now kind of, it's on the same line of what you're talking about. I think you'd really dig that book, man. Okay, absolutely. Uh, so, I've got a, I've got a question um, that has turned out to be the question I ask everyone, um, and uh, you can answer this as long or as brief as you want. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will afford you as much time as you want to answer this question, but to preface the question, I will say. It has been my experience okay. uh, through what I've gone through that a lot of us as humans focus on our legacy. Mm-hmm. We focus on our reputation, right? So how much money does this guy have? What kind of car does he drive? Uh, you know, if I die, I want people to say, you know, I want to make 06, right? For me, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a captain in the Navy. That was my goal, right? And I wanted that to be my legacy that my kids could say like, my daddy was a captain in the Navy. He came in as a seaman recruit. You know, like right. I was so focused on that legacy and that reputation that what happened was I had no focus on my value system. Mm. No focus on my value system. And I didn't, because I didn't really have a value system, I mean, I think I was a pretty good dude. You know what I mean? I was a good dude, but I was more focused on the legacy and the reputation. Right? And I, I would hope, and most people would say, I have a pretty good reputation, but... I don't even care about that anymore. Now I'm focused about my values. I, for, I, I forged my values into my character. Mm. Right? And then so really my character is what I focus on day to day. Because right. I've already aligned my value system. Like, this is what's important to me. Right? These are the values that I... Integrity, um, service, you know, these are my values. Right. Right? I forge that into my character in every situation. So I ask myself something happens or somebody's talking to me I'm like okay remember your value system mm-hmm. let's focus on your character right do the right thing here whether it's hard or not and then I think the the legacy 
the reputation, what you leave behind, how people receive you, what uh, comes back to you. I think all that takes care of itself. Right. I'm not trying to project that on you as your idea, but that that's my belief. Mm-hmm. And that's been my lesson. So the, the question is, if you were to die tomorrow, or if I were to write in this book right here, you know, this is Anthony's character. These are the words that I would use to describe his character. I'm going to close this book, and you're never going to read it. I'm not going to allow you to read it. Right? Or if I put it on your tombstone, you're gone. Right? Or if, if it was in a memoir somewhere, or somebody was as gifted with spoken word as you were, and they were to write a poem about you and do spoken word about you and your character, what would you want your character... What would you hope that others would say your character is? Hmm. That's deep. That's deep. <laughs> That's a good one. You should keep that up. That's a good one. Um, it's the foundation. Yeah. I would say... I would want it to say, here lies a man who was unafraid to give all of himself for what he could become and what others could become as a result of it. Um, That has been the foundation um, of almost everything that I've involved myself in from, you know, my upbringing to uh, my junior sailors and uh, oftentimes for me at my pay grade, people are like, you talk about your junior sailors so much, you know, like you're a first class or a chief. And it's just like, you don't understand the rate that I'm in. You know, I had 45 people working for me at one point, you know, and well, let me retract that, working alongside of me. Because I never looked at people as working for me, more so working alongside of me. Um, because I had to realize that what I do is not for me. The things that I've been able to persevere through the things that God has allowed me to persevere through is not for me. It's for the individual that comes to me with a similar experience and or uh, something that may be a little bit deeper uh, to allow them uh, an alternative perspective to be able to get through what they're going through. And the vulnerability aspect of it is just being unafraid of who you truly are. Two of the most powerful words um, that will ever be combined is I am. And when you put those two words in front of anything, that is what you truly begin to identify as. Um, And for a long time, it took me, um, it it was kind of painful. I'm very intelligent. um, I'm very bold. I'm very courageous. I'm very adventurous. And uh, for a long time, I didn't like that about myself um, because it was always met with negative connotations and or negative feedback. Oh, you know, you think you're intelligent or you think you're smart and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I have a very expansive vocabulary. So, you know, I would use a certain word that people might have, you know, been unfamiliar with. And, oh, you know, you're talking white, you know. And I was just like, no. And I'm just talking, you know, like I have intelligence. Like I've read a book before, you know. Uh, I actually used to read the dictionary for fun. And it actually you know, helped me in my spoken word to be able to reach, you know, more diverse audiences by using specific words. Um, And just being a lover of vocabulary. Um, But that vulnerability allows you to, uh, different experiences that we go through, uh, it allows you to be more raw and be more open. Um, And at one point, I was embarrassed by it. Um, I was embarrassed by the things that I went through. I was embarrassed by my upbringing. Um, I was embarrassed about my mom, you know. And uh, I just had to realize that 
you know, it is what it is and it ain't what it ain't. You know what I mean? And who, who I am now as a result of those experiences, I can't take that back. You know, it literally has defined who I am. And I've God has allowed me to redefine who society says that I should have been as a result of those experiences. Uh, so here lies a, a young man that was unafraid to be vulnerable for not just what he can become, but what others can become as a result of it. I don't take pride in the fact that I have, um, you know, my surface, my air warfare, my information warfare. I take more pride in the fact that I allow, uh, God allowed me to help six other sailors, you know, get their warfare pins on deployment, if not one, but two um, warfare pins and not just be qualified um, outside of the rate, but in the rate as well. Um, because to me, again, you know, like I stated earlier, nothing I do is for me. I am going to succeed regardless of what other people do. I'm just going to. That's just the sheer, the, the, the deep down grittiness of my personality. However, the more people that you help along the way, to me, that is what truly quantifies the success that you're ultimately going to have. Because no one person has ever gotten to where they wanted to get alone. Um, I hear Rick Ross, um, I listen to a lot of his music, um, he talks a lot about being self-made. Whereas it sounds good when you say it on a record, or it sounds good when you say, oh, I, you know, I'm self-made, I'm self-employed, whatever the case may be. But really and truly, nobody has ever done anything alone. Nobody. Because somebody had to support you. Somebody had to buy your records. Somebody had to frequent your businesses. Somebody had to, you know, pour into you um, when, you know, you were down to encourage you to continue going. You know, somebody somewhere, whether it was an internal or external force, had to motivate you to want to be better. Um, so in that, I realized that nothing I do is for me. And the willpower that, you know, God has given me to succeed and the grittiness to be able to get into the trenches, you know, be unafraid to say that, you know what, seeming such and such, give me that paintbrush or, you know, give me that broom. Let me sweep with you. Hey, how's your day going? You know, something as simple as that or, you know, let me get that paintbrush. Let me paint with you something that, you know, to them, it's just like, oh, wow, why is PM2 painting with me? He should be in the office doing some paperwork. And it's just like, no, I'm still a servant at the end of the day. You know, I, I still uh, take the time to uh, use those what I call impactful moments to reach out to my junior sellers because service goes far beyond the brow. Uh, my BM1, who's now BMC, uh, Truesdale, shout out to him. He uh, he told me that service is far Maybe. beyond the brow. Absolutely. And um, it wasn't until I made BM2 that I truly realized what that meant. Because these junior sailors, 18 to 24 years old, coming in the Navy, you know, that you're putting this money in their pocket. You're giving them this freedom that they never had before. A lot of them don't know what to do with it. And without proper guidance, they're bound to fall into a path that... You literally, it's almost like you can see it. You know, I've seen so many waves of, of new sailors come in that to me is another gift of being a boatswain mate that you see so many different waves of undesignated seamen that you learn to read people within the first 30 to 60 days of meeting them. <clears throat> oh, I know what type of sailor this individual is going to be, even if it's based on the previous experiences of what you've had. And sometimes they shock you, but more oftentimes than not, they don't because, you know, you're so used to seeing this specific type of personality. Oh, this guy's from the hood, you know, he still thinks he's in the hood, all right, let me let him know he's in the military. You know, this guy, you know, he's from the country, all right, let me let him know that, you know, there's more to, you know, the world than just the country, you know what I mean? And 
being able to reach out to diverse groups of people and do it in a way that is organic and that is authentic. Um, and, you know, we talked about this earlier. People will latch on to that. You know, when you truly have a service that, you know, you are providing. And for us, it's literally getting up every single day, putting your arms and putting your legs inside that uniform and going and immersing yourself into an atmosphere that, you know, is impactful regardless of what it is that you do or whatever your job is, be it, you know, super dangerous, be it not dangerous. You know, something as simple as uh, my my uh, chief would say, uh, treat the SH with the same respect that you give the OD. You know what I mean? So, yes, you know, this person, you know, might cut hair or this person might, you know, scan your items in the ship store, but they deserve the same respect that you give the OD, the officer of the deck. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of take that into life, period. You know, when I go into different atmospheres, you know, uh, professors, um, CEOs, um, uh, regardless of where the individual comes from, I give them that respect regardless of whether or not they give me respect. And then from there, you know, we begin to have experiences with one another that lets me know if this is an area that I need to stay in or if this is an area that I need to leave. Um, so I, it is my hope that I'm seen as a, a serviceman of not just the military, but of the world. That's a great answer, man. I, I, won't, uh, I won't have any. I won't, that's beautiful. I'll just leave it at that. Um, just want to take a minute to acknowledge you. I, you know, I, I think... Uh, I respect you as a brother. Uh, you're a great boastmate. mate. Uh, you're a lighthouse for others. Uh, and that, that's really... I love being a boastmate mate too. I love the Navy. But what you're doing is more impactful, more powerful than anything you could ever do uh, just by simply wearing those crows on your arm. Um, you're a lighthouse for others. And uh, I respect and I honor you, man. That's, that's tremendous. So Absolutely. thank you. So if you would, uh, if, if you're willing to grace us with one more of your God-given gifts. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Former U.S. President John F. Kennedy eloquently creates an argument that has served as the catalyst for intellectual and contentious debate. He states that the goal of education is the advancement of knowledge and the dissemination of truth. I agree. The goal of education is truly the advancement of knowledge and the dissemination of truth, however. We as African-American men have been lying to ourselves for years. Think back. Since the inception of HBCUs in 1837, we have sought to provide the highest form of education possible to minorities worldwide, especially black men. But we can see an alarming issue plaguing our black colleges today. That issue, the apparent lack of black male presence, HBCUs are truly the cornerstones of African-American history and culture. However, the question was asked, are black males truly the catalyst for the survival of these great institutions? I would argue this very point. How can we, as black males, be the catalyst for the survival of these great institutions if we ourselves are increasingly becoming non-existent? A recent study by the Department of Education explicitly states that black men make up 7.9% of 18 to 24 year olds in America. However, black men only represent 2.8% of undergraduates. In addition, only 29% of black males are graduating in six years from HBCUs. Credible scholars argue that this is indeed due to a lack of positive male role models and the absence of the male in the home. Moreover, I contend a different reason. These young men were never taught how to properly utilize their bodies since birth. Here's why. 
They have never been taught how to stay ahead of the game. Therefore, they see all of the wrong things. They know right from wrong, yet they speak all of the wrong things out of their mouth, so the devil consistently taps their chin. They bear the weight of the world on their shoulders designed to keep their back straight and their chest out to stomach the pain. But they waste time on things they don't need, like thighs and legs, and don't allow their ankles to support them so they consistently stay defeated. Ladies and gentlemen, our young men are trapped in a world where value systems are based on the latest fashions, social trends, and fictitious desire for immediate economic stability. Education seems to no longer be in the forefront of the minds of our youth or world, or young men are so wrapped up in social media but struggle to solve basic social problems. Can tell you about the new Jordan Gamma Blues, but can't explain scientific gamma rays. Refer to themselves as young gangsters instead of real men. And we wonder why the black male is increasingly becoming non-existent in the halls of these great institutions. As I come to a close, I am reminded of the sentiments of the late great Dr. Martin Luther King, who once proclaimed that the time is always right to do what's right. And at this point, the right thing to begin doing is telling these young men the truth. A wise man once stated that adversity is the first path to truth. And as a mentor, my duty is to pave the way. My question to you, how many roads have you paved?